in the sacredness of the season, we give thanks for hope, for peace, for joy, for love. And now for your greatest gift of all in us, to us, for us and through us, the gift of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name and for his sake we hope, pray, and believe this day. Amen. Some of you have heard me refer to the saying that my grandmother would quote from time to time to me about the Bible. This quote for me comes alive on days like today where I hope we see the breadth, depth, and richness of Scripture, passages we often take for granted, some we may not even know. But the saying my grandmother used to share, the Bible is a place where babes can wade and find meaning and scholars can swim and never touch bottom. The Bible is a place where babes can wade and find meaning, and scholars can swim and never touch bottom. We've been moving through the Gospel of Luke over these last three Advent Sundays we begin with the overall theme of hope in our first week. Second week, our theme was peace. Last week, our theme was joy, and all three of those themes percolated through and emerged out of the first and the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Today's lectionary passage moves us from the Gospel of Luke, interestingly, to the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. It is then, for just a moment, I'd like us to do something a little bit different and to get a little more theoretical, philosophical, and highly biblical in the sense that we see a comparison between these two important biblical stories. In a moment, we'll get specific about the the birth stories in both Gospels. But overall, let's look at the trajectory of both of these Gospels. They begin with the, the preparation and then the birth of Jesus. But they're overarching. The arc of the story in both of these is important for us to back up and see for just a moment. In Matthew, the overall imagery that Matthew uses very intentionally is Jewish imagery. Sometimes you've heard us refer to Matthew as the most Jewish of the four Gospels. This is very intentional because the effort in Matthew is to demonstrate to the audience, to us as listeners and readers, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of the hope, the bringer of the peace, the advent of the joy and the living out of the love that is the gospel story. Matthew's effort is to take us back in this first chapter, we're gonna talk more specifically in a moment about the genealogy. Matthew's very intentional about beginning with Abraham. Abraham was the first 
real intentionally called. It is Abraham and Sarah that God speaks to and says, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the families of the earth. It is through Abraham that the story is lived out and told. Matthew's very intentional about beginning this genealogy with Abraham to demonstrate Jesus' lineage as the fulfillment of this Hebrew Jewish story. In addition, Matthew is also very subtle, but very clear. For Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the deliverer, the liberator. Moses was seen as the the one who allowed the Hebrew people to be taken out of slavery, to be liberated from their bondage. In the same way, Matthew says, this is what Jesus does for us. Now, in a whole new way, not only is Jesus our new liberator, our savior, our deliverer, but also Jesus brings to us a new law by the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's very interesting. Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. Matthew is very clear Jesus is preaching the new law on a new mount, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the new law now is delivered for us to learn how it is that we treat one another. We understand the old law percolated through, lived out in Jesus and in each of our lives. Jesus, the new Moses, the new lawgiver, speaking the new law for you and for me. Now let's compare this with Luke. We've been listening to the the narration that Luke offers us about the story of Jesus' birth. But the overall arc of this story in the Gospel of Luke in comparison to Matthew. While Matthew has very Jewish imagery, Luke has what we can call very equitable imagery. Remember, the author of Luke is very much gearing his message to an audience of people like you and me. That is, we're folks who don't have a Jewish background. We are Gentile people. So Luke's agenda is to make this gospel story adapted to and understandable by people who may not be quite as conversant with what's going on in the background. The story and the the imagery is equitable, and we'll say more about that in just a moment. For Luke, Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah. He is that. But more importantly, Jesus is the savior of all people. The way Luke illustrates that is, while Matthew is making the genealogy begin with, with, with Abraham, Luke is very intentional. The genealogy that Luke presents in the third chapter of Luke begins not with Abraham, but with Adam. Think about the significance of that. If you're related to Adam, and I'm related to Adam, then we're all in this together. We all have the same common ancestor. This is not just for Jewish people. This is for all people everywhere. This is what we mean by equitable imagery. And in in addition, Jesus is seen as not so much the new Moses in Luke, but the new Adam bringing about a new creation. This is a new start for you and for me. The story of Jesus' birth changes everything and gets us back to the very beginning. 
Jesus is the new Adam. And now the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew in Luke becomes what's called the Sermon on the Plain. Luke is very clear in the sixth chapter of Luke, the same words virtually that Jesus preaches from Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, in Luke those same words are presented in what Luke calls a level place. This is partly geographical, but for Luke it's also highly symbolic. It's that everyone is on the same level ground. We're all on a level playing field. We're all the same, whether we're rich or poor or wherever we come from, whatever uh, our national background might be, we're all in this together. We would call this equitable imagery. Jesus is the Savior of all people. And followers of this now are not just followers of the new law, but in Luke, it's followers of the new way. Called to live, following Jesus on this new path, this new journey, this new way of the gospel story. Now, this is the broad, arcing story, narrative line of both Matthew and Luke. And the fascinating comparison of how these two work and the agendas these two have. Let's see how now, more specifically, they work with the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus. We said our first week when our overarching theme was hope, it was Elizabeth and Zechariah in the first chapter of Luke that illustrated that. These two people, as Luke said so gently, getting up in years. They were too old to have children. There was no way this could happen. In fact, Elizabeth had been barren all her life, but when there is no way, God makes a way. And it's illustrative of this background. Luke very uh, neatly offering kind of the image of Elizabeth and Zechariah representing Abraham and Sarah at the beginning of the Jewish people. This is in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It's this, the subtlety of Luke's message that this starts as these parents of John the Baptist who will proclaim the new way, who will introduce Jesus as the one who is going to change everything. In the second chapter, we've been focusing the last two weeks through the message of peace and the message of joy with the image of these shepherds in the field being greeted by angels and there's singing and this joyful sense of both a gentle kind of presentation but also a real feeling of hope and possibility and joy. This is the first and the second chapters of Luke the Christmas story, what we call the birth narrative of Jesus, which is in fascinating contrast to the way Matthew presents. In Matthew, we'll talk more specifically in just a moment about Jesus' genealogy. This comes right at the beginning in the first chapter. If you've ever started reading in Matthew and you realize there are 28 generations you've got to make it through, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father. I see some of you already falling asleep. This is, this is the way Matthew starts. It's very intentional. It goes back to Abraham. But we're going to discover that Matthew has an agenda in the way he gives the genealogy that's subtle and profound 
and I'm going to warn you now, R-rated. That's just a warning. We'll get there in just a moment. Jesus' genealogy also merges into the second chapter of Matthew, which we'll talk about in two weeks, where the Magi are the primary characters. They're called Magi. We interpret them as wise men. It doesn't say that they were men. It doesn't say that there were women. It doesn't say that there were three. We do know in Tennessee we used to call them firefighters because it does say they came from afar. We know that they came from way off, somewhere else. They were not Jewish people. They also were quite wealthy because of the incredible gifts that they bring to the greatest gift that God has given. They're called magi. Some of you, I know, have said this before. Wise men could be seen as an oxymoron, while wise women is simply a redundant phrase. So we'll stick with magi. And the other contrast, while in the second chapter we have wise men contrasting with the second chapter of Luke, the shepherds, instead of angels in Matthew, second chapter, we have King Herod. It's not in Matthew the singing and the joy and the gentle presentation that Luke offers. In Matthew, it is tension, it is fear, It is the story of our salvation literally hanging by a thread. In Matthew, there is fear. There is the unknown. So let's move more deeply into Matthew. For many of us as babes, we have waited through these stories all these years, but God continues to call us to go more deeply to swim more thoroughly and to discover that no matter how deep we go, we can never touch bottom. We will continue to discover new, profound ways of understanding our faith and what God is doing in and through us and what God has done in and through our spiritual ancestors. So we look at, speaking of ancestors, this is the ancient version of Ancestry.com. Matthew in the first chapter is very intentional about presenting this long list of who it is that Jesus comes from. Folded into this are five very interesting names that traditionally are not supposed to be there. Every now and then, names like these would creep in, but Matthew is very intentional. It's not just one or two, it's five. Their names are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and then finally, Mary. They all have a couple of things in common. What is the most obvious? They're all women. Now, when a genealogy starts with Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, you get that rhythm that this is all about fathers and sons and who comes next as a male lineage. It ought to be a little bit of a surprise that there are these five women who emerge. They have that in common, but they also have something else in common. Tamar, we begin with. 
This is from the 38th chapter of Genesis. I'm not gonna go into detail, I'm just gonna tell you whatever you do, don't read Genesis chapter 38. It's filled with racy sexual stuff that will make you very uncomfortable. There's gonna be a lot of Bible reading this afternoon. (laughs) Don't go there. Tamar, her survival hangs by a thread. It is only by her own cleverness that she is able to survive. And not only survive, become the mother of Paris, who, it turns out, becomes the father and the great and the grandfather and the great-grandfather and the great-great-grandfather of King David. Tamar merges with the lineage of Rahab. Rahab, we're told about in the second chapter of Joshua. Spies have entered into the land of Canaan. They're in the city of Jericho. Rahab has a particular profession. She would hang a red cord out of her window. In those days, it was called the Red Cord District. With the advent of electricity, it's now called something different. Don't read the second chapter of Joshua. You will be offended. Rahab is a key figure in the genealogy of David, and she was a prostitute. Ruth, the whole book of Ruth is about this very important woman. Her survival, too, like Rahab and like Tamar, hangs by a thread. She is with her mother-in-law. Both of them have lost their husbands. They have no other means of survival. Naomi was her mother-in-law. The the word Naomi in Hebrew means cloud, gentle, floating. Naomi has gone on record saying, no longer call me Naomi. From this day forward, call me Mara which means bitterness. Everything has been taken from me. I've got nothing left. And Ruth says, no, you've got me. I'm not going to leave you. She says, why would you stay with me? You're a Moabite. My son is dead. Your husband no longer lives. You need to find somebody else. And Ruth says, I'm going to stay with you. And she says, well, we're both going to die then. But I have an idea. There's a guy named Boaz. I think he'd like you. Make him like you. He'll take care of us. And Ruth becomes the mother and the grandmother and the great-grandmother of King David. Which brings us to the second chapter of, or the the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel. It's about King David. And it begins with these words. It happened late one afternoon. 
when all the kings were off at war in the spring of the year, and King David remained in the palace alone. Now, generally speaking, in writing a novel, when you're going into the passive voice, it's building up to something interesting. Once again, don't read 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's racy, it's sexual, it's R-rated. Enjoy your reading. And what happens is, of course, David seduces Bathsheba, except in this genealogy, her name is not mentioned. She's simply called the wife of Uriah, which I think is Matthew's way of reminding us that not only are these people in Jesus' genealogy struggling for their survival and having to do whatever it takes to stay alive, but they're also, listen carefully, foreigners, Hittites, Canaanites, Moabites, they're not Jewish. They're from outside the realms of acceptability, except that they are in the lineage of Jesus. Which brings us to Mary. The camera shifts subtly in this first chapter of Matthew. The focus moves directly into Joseph, and what a beautiful rendition Eliel did on Joseph's song, and hearing his perspective on holding baby Jesus. This first chapter of Matthew comes before that moment, though, where in Matthew's tension, Joseph doesn't believe Mary's story. Step into Joseph's shoes for just a moment. And his betrothed has just said to him, I know you and I have not yet been together, and I'm pregnant. How would you feel? That's exactly the way Joseph felt. And Matthew gently puts it, and he determined to put her aside quietly because he cared for her. And then this very interesting perspective is offered. Matthew prepares us for it even in the genealogy because in the genealogy, notice the wording. It says very simply, as Joseph is sleeping and dreaming, and Jacob was the father of Joseph. And Joseph was the husband of Mary. Perhaps Matthew is really wanting us to see, not only is this the lineage of David, but also it is the lineage of Jacob and Joseph. This Joseph apparently had a father named Jacob. But this is an echo of the Genesis story where Jacob was the father of 12 sons and one of his sons was named Joseph. That Joseph was sold into slavery, sent to Egypt, also had an existence that was hanging by a thread at several different points. But out of his frightening, adventurous journey, 
Joseph ends up becoming a hero. In fact, he becomes a source of salvation for his people, the very ones that had turned their backs on him and sold him into slavery. He rescues, liberates, saves. It was Joseph who also was known in Genesis as a dreamer, being informed through dreams, very important information that would serve as salvation for his people. It was also Joseph in Genesis who becomes the father of Ephraim, Ephraim who becomes the tribal leader of one of the northern tribes centered in a little area known as Galilee that has a little town called Nazareth. Could it be that Matthew, in this very intentional, quiet, beautiful way, filled with tension, lets us in on the fact that something is up that is going to change everything, will set us free, not just like those in Egypt saved from famine, but even more broadly, deeply, and beautifully. And Matthew, this section in the first chapter, gently lets us know Joseph plays a vital role in this, but it's actually the one he gets to name. You shall call his name. Isus in Greek. Jesus is the English rendition of the Greek Isus. Isus is the Greek rendition of the Hebrew Yeshua. Yeshua is the Hebrew rendition of what we would say in English, God saves. And his name also shall be called Emmanuel. It's not just that God saves from a far distance, but God saves here and now in you and in me. No matter how frightening your life is, no matter how chaotic things feel, no matter how much tension you have, the gospel story, the birth of Jesus, is a reminder to you and to me. Into our chaos, into our darkness, God has brought forth a great light. And you shall call him Jesus. And his name shall be called Emmanuel, for God is with us. Thanks be to God. Amen.